Please open your Bibles for our Old Testament reading to Deuteronomy chapter 5, page 206 of your Pew Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 5. This chapter contains the reason why we call this book Deuteronomy. Deuteros meaning second and namos meaning law. We have in this chapter a republication of the Ten Commandments or the moral law of God. Hear now the reading of the Word of God, inspired by His Spirit and profitable for us. Deuteronomy 5, the whole chapter. Verse 1. And Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day that ye may learn them and keep and do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount, out of the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord. For ye were afraid by reason of the fire, and went not up into the mount, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have none other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee, or make thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments." Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it. As the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor any of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. And remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore... The Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. Honor thy father and thy mother, as the Lord thy God commanded thee, that thy days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, neither shalt thou commit adultery, neither shalt thou steal, neither shalt thou bear false witness against thy neighbor, Neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife, neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house, his field, or his manservant, or his maidservant, his ox, 
or his ass, or anything that is thy neighbor's. These words the Lord spake unto all your assembly in the mount, out of the midst of the fire, of the cloud, and of the thick darkness, with a great voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them in two tables of stone, and delivered them unto me. And it came to pass, when ye heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, for the mount The mountain did burn with fire, that she came near unto me, even all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And ye said, Behold, the Lord our God hath showed us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God doth talk with man, and he liveth. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go thou near and hear all that the Lord our God shall say. And speak thou unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee. And we will hear it and do it. And the Lord heard the voice of your words, when ye spake unto me. And the Lord said unto me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken unto thee. They have well said all that they have spoken. Oh, that there were such an heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their children forever." Go, say to them, get you into your tents again. But as for thee, stand thou here by me, and I will speak unto thee all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which thou shalt teach them, that they may do them in the land which I give them to possess it. Ye shall observe to do therefore as the Lord your God hath commanded you. Ye shall not turn aside to the right hand, or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God hath commanded you, that ye may live, and that it may be well with you, and that ye may prolong your days in the land which ye shall possess. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Verses 1 through 5, we have God's intention Why did he give the Ten Commandments to Israel? He gave it to them as their inheritance and as their duty. Notice verse 1. He says, The reason that I spake these was that ye may learn them and keep and do them. Now, this word learn has the idea of an exercise of the mind to strain every nerve in your mind in order that you may grasp the truth of a thing. It keeps you mentally fit, in other words, the learning process that he describes here. It's hard, it's not super easy. Then he says that you would keep or watch over the law. You'll learn it, and then you'll treasure it up, and you'll look after it, and carefully have charge over it. Then not only will you learn and carefully guard this deposit that God has handed to you, but you will do his commandments, not just in the mind, 
but with the hands and the feet, with the words and the deeds, you will obey in practical ways. This is God's intention. God gives us his commandments for learning, for keeping and watching over, and for practicing and doing in our lives. Verse 2 refers to God making a covenant with us. Now, this is the word berith in Hebrew, and in the Greek Septuagint, it's the word diatheke. It's where God imposes his will. He passes on goods, and this covenant, this law, is part of the goods that God has passed on to his heirs. This is my family likeness. You will be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is your inheritance forever. Notice, he says that he did not make this covenant with their fathers in verse 3. This is a unique administration of his testament, of his blessings. Now, one reason for that is that every man who heard the words of that testament, every man who swore allegiance to it, was now dead. All the fathers had passed on. But also there was new power, new clarity, greater signs and wonders than the covenants that he had made previously. God says that in verse 4, he talked to them face to face, plainly, without any figure of speech. The Ten Commandments is the deep things of God. When you write to a friend a letter, and they write a letter to you, you speak of things that are on the surface. When you see them face to face, you speak of deep things. God's saying, my law that I spoke to you in Mount Horeb is the deep things of God, the profundity of my teaching, the greatness of my holiness and justice. God, he says, spoke to you face to face in a familiar way, freely and deeply. Now, It's interesting, the Ten Commandments, when God spoke them, it was in the midst of a fire, fire symbolizing justice and refining, the power of God to discern the thoughts and intents of the hearts is displayed forth. It required that there be a mediator between God and men. At this time, Moses, standing as a representative of our Lord Jesus Christ, is between God and the people, verse 5 says. Then in verses 6 through 22, we have the namesake of the book, the repetition of God's law of the Ten Commandments. Notice verse 6, he says in preface that he took them up out of the house of bondage, grace being the context for the law of Moses. He tells them they should have none other gods, no strange or alien gods, not even in secret, because there God's face is present, no God's before me, before my face, literally. Then God says in verse 8, you shall not make unto you any graven image. That doesn't mean don't make images in order to bow to them, just don't make them. In fact, he tells them later to destroy the images. So not only are we prohibited from religious gestures as bowing, or religious acts of worship as service, but we are prohibited from making these graven images. Now you find later, God makes exceptions to this general rule, as is often the case of scripture. If God told them to make a graven image of a uh, angel, they could do it, or of a pomegranate, they could do it. 
but those were not used as objects which they would bow to or burn incense to them or other acts of service or religious devotion. No, those were merely God's sovereign right to regulate his worship according to his own will because he says he is a jealous God. This is the reason. The nature of God prohibits us from making, from bowing to, or serving images or any likeness because God is jealous. Those who believe that the incarnation of Christ set aside this aspect of God's character are heretics. They're saying that God has changed his nature because of the gospel. No, that's heresy. That's Gnosticism. The ancient Gnostics, God has lost his justice because Jesus was incarnate. Therefore, now we can make graven images. Now we can bow before them. No, that's heresy. That's lawlessness. That's turning the grace of God in the incarnation into lasciviousness in idolatry. God is a jealous God, and therefore he does not allow us to make or to bow to any image, to offer no incense or acts of worship or devotion to graven images. The nature of God prohibits it. God is a spirit, and what is more, graven images are the work of whom? Of God? No, they are the work of men, and therefore men will bow before the work of their own hands and say, God, bless me, Jesus was incarnate. No. God says he will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. He will visit to punish the iniquities. And he will show mercy to thousands, not just to those who are sincere in their idolatry. No, he will not show mercy to them, but to those who love God and keep his commandments. Carefully watch over his commandments. Know the details of his holy law. God's mercy outweighs his wrath here. The wicked to three and four generations, the godly to a thousand generations. Look then to God's mercy and know his blessing. Verse 11, do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. A vain thing is empty. It is light. It is without a purpose. What are we to treat God's name as? As a dreadful and glorious name. The name the Lord our God, not as some light or unimportant thing. Why? God says, the Lord will not hold him guiltless. Now magistrates and parents and any other superior has a duty to punish the taking of God's name in vain. But even if man does not, God will, God knows, God sees, and God judges all. Then we have the Sabbath. Verse 12, keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it. That is to treat it As a holy thing, that's the idea of sanctification. That's how we keep the Sabbath, with reverence and respect for God's day, not doing our common labors, our regular employments, our common recreations. No, we set these aside. God says, you can do all your work on the six days. Everything that's appropriate for you, whether work or pleasure. Do all those things in six days, and all I demand, God says, is one day. 
Now, God could say, I want all the days. I want over half the days. I want four and you get three. But God has made a concession. I give you six days, he says, for all of your labors. All I demand is one for my labors, he says. But not only must you keep the Sabbath, you must see, he says, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. Your family religion must pass on to your slaves as well as to your children. Why? Now, if you think, why should we keep the Sabbath? We have God creating the world in six days and resting on the Sabbath. But notice here what the Lord says in verse 15. And remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt. This is especially important when you have slaves and you should let them rest. Remember that thou wast a servant and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore, the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. Well, isn't it because God created in that way? Yes, it's Exodus 20. And here he emphasizes not merely the work of creation, but the work of redemption. I am thy redeemer, he says, and therefore you should observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. God's right as creator, God's right as redeemer, both come together in the fourth commandment and say, this is why you should keep one day in seven is holy because God created you and God saved you. Then he tells them to honor their father and their mother, transitioning to the second table of the law in verse 16. Honor thy father and thy mother as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that thy days may be prolonged and that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. God has designed the fifth commandment as a particular means to bless mankind by his hand for his glory if he thinks it serves to his honor and the good of those who do it, he will cause their life to be prolonged. They will be blessed in their relationship to their parents. They will be blessed in the relationship to their other superiors in life. And therefore, they will live at peace and very uh, likely in all circumstances as a general rule will have a better life. Those who despise their parents... Those who dishonor and disobey their parents can expect misery and suffering and a cut-off life, a life shortened with all means of ill within it. Notice here, verse 21, the Lord refers to the 10th commandment, Thou shalt not desire thy neighbor's wife, neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house, his field, his manservant, or his maidservant, his ox, or his ass, or anything that is thy neighbor's. Now, the Ten Commandments give us illustrations of either things we're not to do or things we are to do, but this is by no means a full list, and this is why the Tenth Commandment gives this general statement. Anything that belongs to your neighbor, don't covet it, don't desire it, don't want it for your own, rather be content with such things as you have. This is a catch-all phrase, anything that is thy neighbor's. The former words being illustrations, not exhaustive lists. Well, as long as it's not listed here, I can covet it. No. Anything that is thy neighbor's. 
Then it tells us in verse 22, these words, the Lord spake unto all your assembly in the mount out of the midst of the fire of the cloud. And it says he wrote them in two tables of stone. And then it refers to him adding no more. There is a completion to these commandments written in tables of stone. This is God's covenant, God's moral law, written with his own finger, put inside the ark. And throughout the Old and New Testaments, we'll hear the words, the law. And sometimes in context, it may refer to one thing or another, but very frequently we find that these words, the law, refers to this law of the Ten Commandments. This is the law which God added no more. This is the law written with the finger of God. This is the law on tables of stone. This is the law put inside the Ark of the Testament. This is the law that God anticipates all men everywhere will say, what a righteous law this people has. This is the moral law. And this is why God added no more to it. The rest of the laws, as important as they were or are, are not of the same importance as the Ten Commandments. Israel then makes a petition. They see the flame. They hear the voice. They shake and are afraid of God, the lawgiver. And so they make a petition. God, through Moses, can you please speak to us through Moses now? We don't want to hear you anymore. We're very likely going to die. God doth talk with man and he liveth, they say, verse 24. But if we hear this voice of the Lord our God any more, then we shall die, verse 25. God was merciful and spared them once. They didn't anticipate he'd spare them again. Go thou near, they ask, verse 27, and hear all that the Lord our God shall say, and speak thou unto us. You be our prophet. You be our mediator. You take the words of God and present them to us. And what, for their part, will they do? Verse 27, we will hear and do. This is the same verb as in verse 1. We will do, we will practice. We will put into practical obedience what God will speak to us through Moses. Now, God cannot be deceived. You cannot play with God. You cannot say something and expect that if you're lying in your mind, that somehow he'll just hear your words. Verse 28. They have well said all that they have spoken, God says. Good job to vow to do everything I say. He commends them for that. But notice verse 29, the sad words. Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their children forever. Were they actually going to do what they vowed to do? No. They did not have the internal compunction. They did not have the heart, as we say, to do it. Oh, that there were such an heart, God says. This is what we call an anthropopathism. Anthropos is man. Pathos is a suffering or a feeling that someone has. The Bible will attribute to God, in fact, God will attribute to himself, human feelings. Does God not know that they don't have that? 
Does he not have the ability to change their hearts? Well, of course. That's why this is a figure of speech. He recognizes that their words and their heart are not the same. The lip and the heart. The Bible doesn't divide between the head and the heart. No, the Bible divides between the lips, what you say, and what you actually think on the inside. Because words are supposed to tell us what you think inside. And when the words say one thing and the heart says something else, you're not telling us what you actually think inside. And they did not have such a heart. Let us then not be like them. Let us keep our vows to God, whether merely in baptism or by a public profession of faith or for me as a pastor. Let us do what we have said. Have we said we will fear God? that we will love him and serve him, that we will repent of our sins, that we will grow in grace and knowledge, that we will seek to do his commandments in all things, then let us do these things lest we be like them. God then in verse 31 refers to what he will do. He accepts the proposal of Israel. I will speak unto thee all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments. This is what God will deliver to Moses outside of the Ten Commandments. Now, some people believe, and I think with perhaps some accuracy, that the commandments could be seen as continuations of the Ten Commandments, moral laws, in other words, precepts that govern man because he's human, not because he's a Jew in that sense. And then the statutes, those standing laws that God would build up specifically for that people and their worship. Then the judgments could be those judicial sentences composed by God through Moses that we call the forensic laws of Moses or the judicial laws of Moses. In other words, this could be dividing up the moral, the ceremonial, and the judicial law. But even if that's not the reference specifically to these words, the categories are there and we'll find it. What is the reason of the law? This law attaches to the temple and the sacrifice. This law attaches to their unique position as a people chosen by God in the land of Canaan, in other words. So God was going to deliver these other commandments, these other statutes, and these other judgments to Moses, and the people would not listen to God directly any longer. God says why he would give them these laws that they may do them in the land. God's law prepares for national life and prosperity. God's grace underlies that law. He tells them in verse 32 that if they would be blessed and obedient, if they would keep and hear, if they would learn and do, they must not turn aside, he says. Where? Well, to the right hand or to the left. Here's the path, God says, The path is my law. Don't think you have a better pathway to go this way or that way. God isn't strict enough here. Let's make more rules. God is too harsh here. Let's loose men from his rules. That's the idea of going to the right hand or to the left. Oh, great God, our king, we love you, but your laws. You didn't think of some things. Or, I don't like how harsh that is, God. 
That's not quite right. I think we need to loose it up a little bit. You're too strict. You're too precise. God says, shut up. Be quiet. Don't turn aside one side or the other. Don't add to the scripture. Don't take away from the scripture. Listen only to my voice. Now, God would add to his word, would he not? He's telling them, don't add to my word. He's not saying, I'm not going to add to my word through Moses. No, God will add. He will have prophets. He will have apostles. He will have what we call inspired organs. God-breathed scripture will come through those men. God will speak. But that's what he's talking about. Hear only my voice in the canon of scripture. Don't listen to other voices. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God hath commanded you. Everything else but scripture is the right hand or turning aside to the left hand. And thus far, the explanation of Deuteronomy chapter 5 and the repetition of God's holy law. Let's join together in a prayer of confession of sins.